0: You define your market so small that you can own enough of it where you're just now the safe provider and then if you have half the market you are now the established player then you can go to much bigger markets and say hey, we're ready to go welcome into to studying success on this
1: podcast i interview investors and entrepreneurs who tell us about their life the ins and outs of their industries and the different ways that they have found success Hi Chris, how are you? Good
0: Will, how about yourself?
1: I'm great. You know, I'm so happy that you're on the show. This is awesome.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: How's your day been so far?
0: It's been good. Yeah, actually got a workout in this morning, and that's always a good start to the day. Let's go right into it. Tell me about Square Root. So I started my company Square Root back in 2006. So it's kind of been a long journey, and sole founder. So kind of started it myself. We are a technology company, but we never raised any money. So one of the things that we were kind of known for around town was we were like the rare bootstraps. Strapped, you know, never brought on investors, a software company. So our thesis was all around, you know, how do we help large companies, primarily in automotive. So we were working with, you know, Nissan and Toyota and General Motors and Subaru, helping them take all their data that they have. I mean, hundreds of data sources all around the industry, and how do we turn that into an insight that somebody at the dealership could actually use? So kind of, you know, think big analytics, but bringing it down to an individual who's not technical and not an analyst. And so we had a software product called Coefficient that was really geared at how do we help the manufacturers, the automotive manufacturers, drive their big initiatives down to the actual dealer. Every dealer is different, right? If you want to drive customer experience and customer satisfaction, you might do a different set of things at dealer A versus dealer B versus dealer C. So we built a lot of tech around that. And we're working with about half the automotive industry before I sold the company last Last year.
1: What is an example of a specific piece of data that
0: would help one of these manufacturers? So the big problem is it almost goes the other way. It's just too much data, right? It's all of it, right? So we kind of looked at and got on all in a single pane of glass customer satisfaction data, inventory data, sales data, service data, industry data for what are the sales all around the industry, not just for a particular manufacturer, training data. And so we could bring all that data into one place and put a single pane of glass over it. And that starts to bring insights you wouldn't get if you looked at any kind of single piece of data. So then if you have these overarching goals, I want to drive profitability. Well, what does that mean? It's a complicated business. Do I want to drive it in my service department or my sales department or both? And for this dealership, where's the kind of easiest place to go and get that? So a lot of our thesis was anybody can look at a single data source and say, oh, your service department is broken here. It's really hard to start to have those kind of next level up conversations around. We want to drive these big themes, these big programs. How do we have an individualized conversation that's really meaningful?
1: Did you have a background in analytics and AI before starting your company?
0: Yeah. So I graduated in the way back. AI wasn't really a thing when I graduated college in 1995, but I went to school at Carnegie Mellon, computer science degree and cognitive psychology. was my second major. So actually at the time that was kind of an AI. It was like half psychology, half computer science. The computer science part of that was way harder, by the way. And I came out of school in 95 and I moved down to Austin, Texas, Carnegie Mellon's in Pittsburgh. I grew up in West Virginia prior to that and moved down to Texas and was working for a technology company called Trilogy. It was some analytics, but mostly enterprise software. So an enterprise software is where you're selling to enterprises, not to individuals. When you interact with any website online, the Facebook's the world, even the Google's the world, those are all consumer websites. Enterprises, when your customers are big organizations. So the sales cycles tend to be longer, dollar sizes tend to be bigger. Trilogy was an enterprise software company and Square Root was also an enterprise software company. So I spent 10 years at Trilogy. I started off as like the technical kid on their new automotive group, work my butt off, basically became known as the go-to guy when you had an impossible deadline that you needed to do because I would just grind through it and work all night and then went up to technical sales and I managed a technical sales team, ran a couple lines of business for them and then left in 2005 and started Square Root shortly thereafter. So my background was technical back in the day, but it quickly, as you kind of go up the business track, especially these days, the speed of technology moves so quickly, you almost got to decide if you're going to stay tech track or go more business slash manager track because you get rusty pretty fast.
1: Where did this idea for Square Root come from? Did it come from a problem that you recognized when you were at Trilogy or studying computer science at Carnegie Mellon, or did it come from somewhere else?
0: I wish this was a more exciting, I guess it's exciting because it's not exciting, which is I left Trilogy. I had what I will refer to as FU money, where I had just enough money where I could take a year and not work, right? So it wasn't the end of the world. There was still going to be food on the table. I could afford my lifestyle. I could afford rent and all that stuff. I didn't have to go right to work. Yeah, I basically just turned 30. I'd met my wife. We weren't married. So if I was ever going to start something, which I'd always wanted to do, this was the time, right? It was like, this is the break, right? If I get into another five or 10 year career, I'll have kids by then. It's going to be in a situation where it'd be really hard to take a bigger risk and start a company. So I basically Started Square Root without really knowing what we were going to do, but I had 10 years of experience, and what that brought me was really two things. The relationships with clients, so I had a lot of very trusted relationships with folks in the automotive industry, and also relationship with just an amazing team of people that I'd worked with over the previous 10 years. And so I literally put those two things together in a way where I went to one of my big clients, it was Nissan, my old big clients. And said hey you know elizabeth and jeff and if i could get elizabeth and jeff to come on board would you hire us to do this problem over here i think we can solve it for you and they're like oh elizabeth and jeff are great of course i do that and i literally went to elizabeth and jeff and said hey I just got a contract with Nissan. You want to do some side project work for me and come and jump on? And they said, yeah, that sounds fun. And so I kind of pulled it together. And the idea was, is we kind of start off with some of these projects, more like a consulting company, but trying to turn them into products that then could go across the industry. In my heart of hearts, I thought that was going to be a four month process. We'll come in and we'll find one of these problems and we'll, we'll build it and we'll go sell it to the whole industry. Yeah. It was. Four years before we really found what ended up to be the big product that helped us scale the company. That's a whole journey in and of itself. I was a, an entrepreneur without an idea, and the way that I came about it was just to embed with customers and work with them very closely to find the ideas that were going to be great for the industry.
1: So, you didn't have any investors for all of Square Root or the majority. Where did all of the financing come for your business?
0: Yeah, so you know at the beginning, it was some of the money I'd saved. The nice thing about the way I started, which was you know, with an actual client and with an actual team is we are profitable from really the first three to six months. I basically started the company with a contract. It wasn't huge, it was a few hundred thousand dollars. That allowed me to go and hire a team. And you know, I didn't get back to the salary that I was making the previous gig for about four years, but it was enough to at least not be losing money, reinvesting most of it. And then by the way, I shot way past that and you know, made a lot more money than I made from the previous gig before being an entrepreneur. So basically self-funded, you know, I I would say client funded, customer funded, funded by actual products and you know, projects and products that we we're selling in the industry.
1: What is your opinion on either getting help from investors or bootstrapping like you did and going with the money that you already have?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting because my brother is actually a very well-known VC-backed entrepreneur here in Austin. And so we actually sometimes do a brother versus brother, bootstrap versus VC talk along. So obviously I'm very biased towards the bootstrap version of that. And in that, we talk a lot about what is the idea? right? Does the idea have to go fast? Is it a very competitive market where if you don't get big quickly, somebody else is going to do it before you can? To go really fast, you need a lot of money. And so that might be an example where you want to go VC first, but you lose control. It's a more complex thing. You very quickly have a whole set of other issues and a board and all these things you have to do when you go the VC route. That can be good. That can be accountability. It brings an ecosystem with it, but there's kind of very, very different businesses. So I, I think you start with, what is the idea? You know, is it fundable? at all, right? Is this something that anybody will write you a check for? If it's not, you're probably going to have to bootstrap for a little longer. And then how fast does it need to go and how do you feel about control and how quickly can you get there by yourself? And that will really kind of determine which is the right path. So my brother and I mentor a lot around town and, you know, it's interesting. It's rare that, you know, if you look at the companies that could be bootstrapped or could be VC'd, there's actually not a huge intersection of those. There's not a lot of companies that can do both. It's either the idea feels more like VC or the idea feels more like like bootstrap along the way. And the reality is, that everybody starts off bootstrapped, right? If it's you in your bedroom thinking about an idea and putting together the deck, even to go pitch somebody that's being bootstrapped, that's being scrappy. And, you know, eventually I sold my company. I'm no longer a bootstrap company anymore. I, you know, cashed out and, you know, work for the acquirer now. So it's really a spectrum, right? And the question is, is how long does it make sense for your idea to be bootstrapped? And it could be forever, it could be forever until you sell or along the way, it may make sense to bring in some capital to Speed up or to tackle new verticals or to buy other companies or whatever the business model says.
1: So it was you, Jeff, and Elizabeth working on a project at Nissan. Where did you go from there? Like, how did you grow it and how did you reach more customers and how did you reach the whole market, like you said?
0: Yeah. So it's a lot easier to sell your next dollar to an existing customer than it is to sell a new customer, right? You build trust. So, you know, all our growth we had in those early years up till really identifying the product that we ended up bringing to the larger market, the majority of that was actually with Nissan. We were growing with Nissan so quickly that I was having trouble staffing behind it. So it was almost easier just to do that than to hire a big sales team and go after everything else. But we did have some other customers. You know, we had some other industry customers we were working with along the way. And then, so let's see, this started in 2006. So 2010, one of our projects at Nissan went from 100k to six months later, we were doing 400K to six months later for that, we were doing 1.3 million and doubled in a year after that. So, you know, about a year and a half into that, we're like, all right, this is the big idea, right? This is that thing we were looking for when we started four years ago. This is the idea that really has scale. And that was this kind of concept of instead of just doing analytics or, you know, we're doing a lot of stuff around order management and vehicle analytics and planning for electric vehicles. We had a lot of, you know, kind of analytic type products that we were building. What the aha was, how can we take these boardroom analytics, right? I used to call it $25 million slide problem. We would show a slide based on all this amazing data science that we did that would say, hey, if you could just get your pick a metric. Your customer retention in the South, like it is in the North, there's $25 million of incremental profit there. Or if you can just get your employee retention in the East where it is in the West, there's $25 million of value there, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's a thousand things you could do. And the problem is, is I don't know what conversation to have at this dealer of my thousand dealers in order to go and drive that. Or I should, if I should talk to that dealer at all. Some dealers are fine in this area and some aren't. So that was really our aha, is if we can take these boardroom discussions and bring them down to the level of an individual, location, an individual dealer, that's really valuable. And that was the product that we ended up bringing to market. And we kind of shut everything else down. We, you know, The order management product we had, the electric vehicle product that we had, we shut those down over the next year and really focused on just how do we take this product to market and then quickly sold a bunch of other vehicle manufacturers and grew the business from
1: there. How did you take that to other companies and to the market as a whole? Did you say, look, we did all this great stuff for Nissan. You should try us out. Or how did that go?
0: Yeah. Whenever you're doing these things, you always like to say, you're basically borrowing credibility right we're a relatively small company at the point we're probably 30 people here in austin so yeah you're a 30-person company talking to volkswagen right one of the largest manufacturers in the world how do you be credible that they should actually trust this small company with both a lot of dollars and a lot of return on investment that they could do somewhere else so yeah we absolutely Leverage the current customers we had and the story. You know, the nice thing was we'd also been around for a while at that point, right? So we started in 2006. We're now kind of 2011 ish type timeframe, 2012. So we weren't fly by night. We've been around for five or six years. We had Hallmark customers like a Nissan and infinity and other folks in the industry. And so you get a seat at the table. But these are long. I mean, some of these sales cycles were years long, right? You get to know folks. People were moving around a little bit. People from Nissan would go to other places. So you'd have an in that way. But these organizations, don't buy anything quickly. So it's a little bit of a war of attrition of just kind of keep going back and then at some point they're ready to buy and you're the first person they call.
1: When you were building Square Root, did you have any competitors? Like I would imagine it would be if there's already established company in that market doing the same thing that you're doing, it would be difficult to compete with that company. Did you have competitors?
0: Yeah, no, it's a good question. It goes kind of back to that bootstrap versus VC too. So our competitors do nothing, right? Which and do nothing in this case was the way that they were managing this problem to date was Microsoft Office, right? It was emails and Excel spreadsheets being sent down to dealers saying, hey, you should fix this. The whole industry runs on Excel. It's true of many industries, sadly. And then maybe the IT departments of these large organizations were building something custom, right? And they might be building that on top of something like a Salesforce or one of the B- products, but there wasn't anything that was kind of bespoke solving that problem. And since that was true, I didn't feel the need to go raise much money and go twice as fast. We were the leader in what we did and the niche of this kind of how do you have better discussions with dealers? We had some very specific products built for the industry that had been in market for years and had rave reviews from large customers like Nissan. So that was enough to overcome the inertia in some cases of those IT departments and of those those processes that they were already doing.
1: In 20- 2011, you said you had your big aha moment of looking at specifically locations with your AI. So walk me through those next 10 years. What were you doing
0: with Square Root from 2011 to 2021? Yeah, it was fighting the good fight. We did two things, not all smart in hindsight. So one is we started to get kind of penetration in automotive, right? So we went from Nissan and we had a Volkswagen, then we added, you know, all the other brands of Nissan. We went international with Nissan into Canada and Australia, and we're talking to other places. Then we added Subaru and Mazda we felt like we were getting good traction in automotive but then that was really years though, right that's like 11 12 13 14 and you know, we step back, we said, okay, there's a great concept and there's a book if you want to go into product management or everybody should read called Crossing the Chasm. It's an older book. But the concept is that there's kind of early adopters that will get on a product and then there's the mainstream and, you know, you want your product to be in the mainstream because that's where all the volume is. You're in the part of the curve you want. And there's a chasm between that. It's really hard to jump over from the people that are risk-taking and will take a bet on a small company for a problem and everybody else. And how do you kind of get over that? And one of the ways you do that is you establish a beachhead. You define your market so small that you can own enough of it where you're just now the safe provider. So you niche and you niche and you niche and you say, hey, of this like little world of field management and some other areas that we were focused on, we are the established player because the thesis is so small. We're the only player that's actually doing it. And then if you have half the market, you are now the established player. Then you can go to much bigger markets and say, hey, we're ready to go. So at the time we were approaching 50% of the automotive market and we looked at, well, is there anywhere else the same? technology could apply. And this idea of I have stores all over the world or all over the U.S. and I have these initiatives I want to push down to them. How do I actually do that actually applies to a lot of industries, right? Drug stores, convenience stores, hotels, restaurants. They all have that kind of very similar structure. So I made a big bet and invested a lot of money and time and energy into let's go try to tackle those other industries. We had some early clients like Walgreens was a big client of ours. We were doing some work with and we got some early indications that this could be a huge opportunity, right? There's 2,000 of those companies. There's really only 20 automotive companies you can go after. But long, long, long story short to that, that was kind of a five-year journey and retail was getting hammered the whole way. You know, Walgreens had the worst quarter since the previous quarter, since the previous quarter, you know, all the way through that journey and, you know, the budgets just kept getting cut and we never got that really big foundational deal and the beachhead of automotive didn't apply, didn't give us enough credibility in retail. The retail thought it was too different and so so we never got it going. And so I focused everything back on just automotive literally as soon as I did that. I mean, months after I made that decision, kind of you know rolled down the retail vertical and rolled back the retail vertical. And we started focusing our energy back in automotive. A bunch of people came out of the woodwork work and tried to buy us. So anyway, we swung for the fences in those next 11 years is probably the short of it and didn't get to the fences and then kind of went back to plan B and sold to an automotive company.
1: So February 1st, 2021, the sale happens. Walk me through how CDK approached you and how the sale went down.
0: Pick up that story. So I basically decided at the end of 2019 to kind of divest ourselves of the retail vertical that we were building and really focus back on auto. Now, unfortunately, what had happened, and this is kind of the, if you could Roll back time. Because we were focused on retail, our auto vertical had actually slowed down. So we were up a little bit year over year for the last couple of years, but not as much had we actually just stayed in automotive and focused on that. So we rolled into the, there's a big industry conference that happens in February. So this is now February of 2020. And we put all of energy into that. We said, okay, we have a slightly different pitch. We were focused just on the big manufacturers, the, the Nissans of the world, but there's all these huge vendors that play in the space too that also need similar technology. And now we have all this credibility in automotive. We have half the industry. Let's go tell this story about how we're going to bring not only the manufacturers, but also these other players into the fold. And so we had a lot of discussions around that kind of thesis at this big event. And we talked to you know, four or five of these big players, and they all said basically the same thing, which was, we get it. That we get the thesis. That's amazing. We absolutely need that, but we're never going to work with you because it's so strategic. We're either going to build her ourselves or we're going to buy you. And so we rolled out of that big event basically with multiple people courting us. All right. So now this was. February of 2020. So what happens in March 2020? Pandemic hits, right? So yeah, basically all hell breaks loose. And it was a really weird time. But we had a couple people looking at us in that kind of first quarter of COVID. I hired a banker. So a banker is someone to kind of manage that process for you. If you don't have a bunch of suitors, they'll you know get the story out and put it out there. So you have more people looking at the company, try to get a little bit of demand going. So the prices get higher. And they also help you kind of manage. It's a very painful process sell company, like the due diligence list, a list of stuff that they look through. I mean, it's hundreds, if not thousands of documents long, right? Where they're going through everything, every contract you've ever done, every bank you know, statement you've ever had, you know everything looking for anything that you know could lead to future legal troubles or future financial troubles as a due diligence. So we got a term sheet from one of them and verbals from two others. We went with the one we actually had a term sheet. It's basically, yeah, you know, here's the price and some of the real basic things you do. You sign that and they basically have 60 days where you're not allowed to talk to anybody else. And that gives them 60 days to come in and grind you through those you know, hundreds of documents to really see if they want to buy the company or not. So that was all basically kind of a October, November of 2020. We were kind of going through that process. It stretched a little bit. We gave them an extra month and we pretty much had signature on paper just into 2021. And then it was kind of a two week, some stuff, you know, that kind of goes through and close on February 1st. It is a process. It is very stressful. You still got to run the company while you're doing all these things. It's pretty secret. You want a core people to know, but you don't want everybody to know because you want your customers to know because it could hurt sales cycles and you don't want to whiplash your team too much with, hey, we're being sold up. Oh, no, we're not. Because these things can die on the signing table. So yeah. And then COVID. was going on this whole time and the world's falling apart. It was like a very, very, very stressful year.
1: What are your reflections having run the company for 16 years? And then what did you like about doing it? What didn't you like? What were the challenges?
0: Yeah, it's stressful to run your own thing, right? I mean, whether you be strapped or venture back, having the tenacity to kind of keep at it and go through it, right? The entrepreneurs are successful because they don't give up, right? I mean, if you gave up, there's a thousand times that the the, the company could have died. The thing that meant the most to me all the way through the journey and even to today was really the team we built, which is kind of... I tried, everyone says that, but we really built something special at Square Root. And you know, some of the folks that work there me are some of my best friends, but also future colleagues, everyone's kind of reaching out to me to, what are you doing next? Let's do it again, right? Building a great team and being very thoughtful about the type of environment and the type of people that you want to attract to that environment, that's kind of the foundation of any great company. And if I think the things I'm most proud of, people won't remember the thesis, they won't remember the business impact we had, they'll remember the experience they had at the company. And we've had people Go to start their own companies after they left Square root. We've had people go on to have amazing careers. and those are the things I'm actually most proud of along the way is the relationships that I made both in clients as well, great relationships with clients. You know, be higher in integrity, hire great people, treat them really well, and everything else will flow from that.
1: What advice would you give or did you receive to get to where you are now?
0: Oh, like the tenacity is a big one. Yeah. The other thing is, is there's better times to do this, like, you know, not right after you have kids. But, you know, I, I talked a lot on people that would be entrepreneurs today, right, who are debating whether to make the leap or not. You know, is this a good thing? And my thought on that is listen, what's the downside, right? The markets are so great for hiring, right? Maybe better now than than just about anywhere. Let's say you take a year, you yeah, know, as long as you have the, you know, a way to financially not feed yourself and do all those. You got a little bit of the FU money in the bank. What's your downside, right? A year from now you're gonna have all this experience and amazing stories how you tried to do this thing and it did or didn't work. Think about walking into a job interview to take, have your current job with a year of entrepreneurial experience that failed you know, dramatically, right? You're more hireable, not less hireable, right? There's really not a lot of downside to giving it a shot. And if it works, then it works. You're in this great place. So if you can afford to take it and give it the old college try for a year, there's not going to be a better time to do it and go and do it. So that's probably my thing, is the only downside is the opportunity cost for the whatever your earnings would have been for that year. I stand by it. I think the experience is invaluable and you're going to be better for it in the long term, even if it doesn't work
1: out. What resources like books or podcasts do you recommend to learn more about entrepreneurship? entrepreneurship and business?
0: Yeah, there's a couple that I love. There's one called Traction by Gino Wickman. And it's really just kind of, he has the thing he calls the EOS, it's the entrepreneurial operating system. And it's really like, you know, how do you run a company, right? How do you set your goals and what cadence do you do? And I, I that's a fantastic book that's kind of a roadmap for how do you think of things? You know, not for nothing, by the way, I apply a lot of those same type of teachings to my personal life, right? With my kids, you know, setting yearly goals, breaking them down into quarterly goals, you know, talking about them regularly. at at family dinners and things like that. So that kind of writing down goals and being thoughtful about your culture and your value and your vision, those are all fantastic things to bring in all aspects of your life. And I think that Gino does a good job with it in Traction. So that's usually the first book I give to folks. There's one that's similar, was actually came before Traction and Traction is kind of based on it called Scaling Up. And that's by Vern Harnish. And it does a better job of some of the softer side, like the setting, the big vision for the company. The vision is if you're successful, 30 years from now, what does the world look like? Nike's was to kill Adidas when Adidas was 30% market share and Nike was two guys in a garage, right? Uh, These kind of big, what does the world look like out there? And then the mission is, what are you actually doing to achieve that vision, right? So you have to have a mission, your vision, and then your values are all around, how do you do those things, right? So when you're not in the room as the boss, how do people tackle problems? What are the values under which they actually make decisions? So it does a good job of really laying out all those things and then has a slightly different framework. than than traction for executing. I think either one of those are great books to think about as you're heading out on the entrepreneurial journey.
1: Awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on the show. That was awesome.
0: Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. As always,
1: thank you for listening and please make sure you subscribe to get updated when new podcasts come out. I'm Will Burkhart and you've been listening to Studying Success.